Welcome to episode 299 of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. If you want to burn fat, gain energy, and enhance your health by changing when you eat, not what you eat, with no calorie counting, then this show is for you. I'm Melanie Avalon, biohacker and author of What Win Wine. Lose weight and feel great with paleo-style meals, intermittent fasting, and wine. And I'm here with my co-host, Cynthia Thurlow, nurse practitioner and author of Intermittent Fasting Transformation, the 45-day program for women to lose stubborn weight, improve hormonal health, and slow aging. For more on us, check out ifpodcast.com, melanieavalon.com, and cynthiathurlow.com. Please remember, the thoughts and opinions on this show do not constitute medical advice or treatment, and no doctor-patient relationship is formed. So, pour yourself a mug of black coffee, a cup of tea, or even a glass of wine, if it's that time, and get ready for the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. Hi friends, I'm about to tell you how to get my favorite electrolytes for free, plus special announcement, Element's new chocolate medley is here. So when you think electrolytes, you might think summer and hot times and needing to stay hydrated. But did you know that hydration is actually super important in cold weather as well? There's an idea out there that cold weather reduces our hydration needs. That's not true. So in the cold, two main things can actually increase our metabolic rate. You may be working harder, tramping through the snow, and you can be wearing cumbersome winter clothing that can actually raise your energy needs by 10 to 20%. And as your metabolic rate raises, your sweat rate raises and you need to replace those fluids with electrolytes. You also lose more water when it's cold through your breath. That's because cold temperatures contain significantly less water than hot temperatures, AKA it's drier outside. When you breathe in that cold, dry air, your respiratory system actually acts like a humidifier so that your body can be warm and humid like it likes to be. Of course, that drains your hydration reserves as well. One study actually found that respiratory water loss after a full day of activity nearly doubled at freezing temperatures compared to the 70s. On top of that, when you're cold, you actually become less thirsty, possibly from blood vessel constrictions in the cold, which can trick the body into thinking the blood volume is higher than it is. In other words, it's cold out there. You probably need hydration and electrolytes are so key for all of these cellular processes in your body, all of your energy production. It all requires electrolytes, but it can be hard to find electrolytes, which are clean without unnecessary fillers and which you can feel good about drinking. That's why I love Element. There's a reason I'm obsessed with it. There's a reason all you guys are as well. And like I said, I'm so excited because Element's new chocolate medley is here featuring chocolate mint, chocolate chai, and chocolate raspberry. And this is a limited time, so you definitely want to stock up on these now. Plus, you can get a free gift with purchase when you purchase that chocolate medley or other Element electrolytes. That's right, you can get a free sample pack, eight single serving packets for free with any Element order. It's a great way to try all eight flavors or share Element with a salty friend. You can get yours at drinklmnt.com slash ifpodcast. That's drinklmnt.com slash ifpodcast. By the way, those chocolates in that chocolate medley make delicious hot chocolates. And of course, as always, Element has a no questions asked refund, so you have nothing to lose. So go to drinklmnt.com slash ifpodcast to get your free electrolytes. 
One more thing before we jump in. Did you know that common ingredients found in skincare and makeup products can actually disrupt your endocrine system? These endocrine disruptors are a silent threat that can have significant impact on your health, including something that is very important to me, fertility. Your skin is your body's largest organ and what you put on it matters. Endocrine disruptors are chemicals that interfere with the natural hormonal communication in the body. It also matters during pregnancy. And that's one of the reasons I pay close attention to what I put on my skin while being pregnant. Studies have shown that exposure to endocrine disruptors can affect both male and female fertility. For women, these disruptors can lead to irregular menstrual cycles, ovulation issues, and even polycystic ovarian syndrome or PCOS. In men, they can reduce sperm quality and quantity, making it even more challenging to conceive. But it's not just about fertility. When it comes to fat loss, one of the reasons that endocrine disruptors can get in the way of fat loss is because a lot of our toxins are actually stored in our fat. It's a way that our bodies protect us from those toxins. These toxic compounds can even work synergistically, amplifying their harmful effects and making it that much harder to shed unwanted body fat. All of these reasons are why I am obsessed with a company called Beauty Counter. The founder actually started the company when she learned about the potential dangers of toxic chemicals and their link to health issues, specifically miscarriages and infertility. While pregnant, I make sure to only use Beauty Counter products. It's one of the only makeup lines that is officially recommended from the Environmental Working Group. What really sets Beauty Counter apart is their unwavering commitment to protecting us, the consumers, from the hidden dangers that lurk in conventional beauty products. Beauty Counter goes above and beyond, rigorously screening every single ingredient that goes into their products, ensuring that they are safe, clean, and free from harmful toxins. They're not just a beauty brand, they're a movement for change, advocating for stronger regulations in the beauty industry. With Beauty Counter, I know that I can trust that the skincare and makeup that I use are not only effective, but also safe for me and my family. They have skincare lines for every skin type, as well as so many other incredible products. I absolutely love their overnight resurfacing peel. It's my favorite way to get anti-aging benefits in a skincare product. The makeup is absolutely amazing. I have tried alternative beauty products in the past and none of them truly performed. But with Beauty Counter, the foundation is so amazing. It makes me feel like my skin can breathe and it looks so dewy and beautiful. You can shop with me at beautycounter.com slash Vanessa Spina. New customers can use the code CLEANFORALL20 for 20% off their first order. Beautycounter.com slash Vanessa Spina. All right, friends, now back to the show. Hi, everybody, and welcome. This is episode number 299 of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. I'm Melanie Avalon, and we have a special episode for you today. We are actually going to air an episode from 2022 when Cynthia Thurlow came on my other show, the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast, to talk about her book, Intermittent Fasting Transformation. I was recently looking at the downloads, all from 2022, and this episode was actually one of my most popular episodes of last year. It's a really great deep dive into all things fasting, especially for women, so I really think you guys will enjoy this. These show notes for the episode 
episode will be at ifpodcast.com slash episode 299. And of course, we are normally a listener Q&A format style show. And if you would like to submit your own questions for the show, just directly email questions at ifpodcast.com or you can go to ifpodcast.com and you can submit questions there. You can also follow us on Instagram. We are ifpodcast. I am Melanie Avalon and Cynthia is Cynthia underscore Thurlow underscore. So without further ado, please enjoy this wonderful conversation with me and Cynthia Thurlow. Hi, friends. Welcome back to the show. I am so incredibly excited about the conversation that I am about to have. So it is with, first of all, a repeat guest, which a guest that my audience absolutely loved the first episode that we did. But not only that, this guest is such a good friend of mine. I was actually thinking about this right before starting, how there are some people in your life that it's weird to think of a time when you didn't know them or when they weren't in their life. Because I'm here with Cynthia Thurlow. And Cynthia, I was thinking back to when we first met. And I don't... How did we get connected originally? I think you had reached out after that second TED Talk. I just recall we were... It was like summer of... Was it 2019, 2020? It might have been through Jen, maybe. Is that possible? Could have been. Absolutely. And you were... I just remember how polite you were. Oh my goodness. Good times. So in any case, I'm here with Cynthia Thurlow. She is a nurse practitioner, CEO, and founder of the Everyday Wellness Project. And like she just mentioned, she has two TED Talks on intermittent fasting, which kind of really catapulted her into the intermittent fasting fame world. She has a new book coming out, which is so, so exciting. So that's why we're bringing her back on the show. I had her on the show earlier. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. And it was just intermittent fasting and women and female and hormones and all the things. But her new book coming out is called Intermittent Fasting Transformation, the 45-day program for women to lose stubborn weight, improve hormonal health, and slow aging. And I will say, so this book, listeners, as you may be familiar, I'm also the host of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. And so I'm thinking about intermittent fasting all the time. I'm talking about it all the time. So I'm always really, really curious when a new book comes out that's focusing on it because I'm always just wondering, you know, what approach are they going to take? What am I going to learn? What type of information will be in this book? And friends, listeners, I cannot encourage you enough, men and women, but especially women out there, get this book. It is so, so comprehensive, so amazing. It covers everything about intermittent fasting, how to do it, a really wonderful approach, in my opinion, to the role of diet and diet quality and macronutrients and what to focus on with all of that. And then a deep, deep dive into hormones, into women's cycles. It's just such an incredible resource. I'm grateful, Cynthia, that you wrote this book and I'm thrilled for it to release. I'm really excited for you. So listeners, I will put a link to that in the show notes. Just Cynthia, thank you so much for being here. No, thank you for having me and that, of course, wonderful introduction. And, and, you know, for listeners that are listening to this, as I tell everyone, I'm just a, a shy introvert who did a talk that really changed the trajectory of everything I was doing. And I feel really, really committed to helping women navigate irrespective of their their age or their stage of life they're in, to be able to make decisions and use strategies that can allow them to live their best lives. 
Well, you are definitely doing that. And I will also put a plug. You also host the Everyday Wellness Podcast. If listeners are not listening to that podcast as well, really, really awesome podcast. A lot of overlap, a lot of the guests that I've had on my show as well. A nice focus on, again, women, hormones, all of that. So definitely check out that podcast. So I actually have a question about your personal story to start things off. And you talk about your personal story in the book, which is really, really valuable. About the intermittent fasting, did you anticipate, I think about this with my own journey, because when I first wrote my book, it was intermittent fasting, paleo and wine. And I didn't anticipate that intermittent fasting was going to become like the thing. I know your TED talk was about it, but like prior to that, did you anticipate that it was going to become like the sensation that it is today? And and how much of a role does it actually play in your day-to-day practice, like with patients? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I myself fell down the intermittent fasting rabbit hole in 2015. And so initially it was just something I did. It was something I did to help support my health. I was kind of of like I was in a position where I was stuck, you know, with a weight loss issue relevant to perimenopause. And so it just started to literally bleed into the work I was doing with women. And of course, I left clinical medicine in 2016 and really became part of nearly every program I worked in with women. And then, you know, the irony is in 2018, I decided to do a TED Talk. I thought that would be a challenging thing to do as an introvert, (laughs) safe, a safe thing to do. And so Initially, my first talk was on perimenopause. And around the time that I accepted that talk, I was approached about doing another one in the state that I was born in, which was really special to me, largely because South Carolina has so many wonderful memories from spending my summers with my grandmother in South Carolina. And so obviously, you can't do a second TED Talk that is even vaguely reminiscent to your first. And I looked at my husband and this is probably December of 2018, and said, what do I know a lot about? And he said, intermittent fasting. And I, so I told the organizers, I'm going to talk about intermittent fasting. <laughs> and so it was that easy of a decision. And no, I never would have guessed that that would have been a strategy that I would be really well known for. I can tell you, I just about fell over when that talk started going viral, largely because I had gotten so sick prior to giving it. But I love the fact that as a traditional allopathic trainers practitioner, I can empower, you know, men and women to embrace a strategy that really isn't new or novel. You know, I I think on so many levels, individuals really believe that it's something new. And I just remind them, as I'm sure you and Jin do on, on your own podcasts that are specific to fasting, that it's really dates back to biblical times. So yeah, it was just as much a surprise to my family as it was to me that this is now what I'm known for. And, you know, the the irony is this book really came out of the work I was doing with women. And the IF45 plan that is, you know, depicted in the book was what came out of all of a sudden I had to, you know, scramble to try to create things to meet the needs of people that were coming to me saying, hey, if you're someone that really knows how to strategize about fasting, can you help me? And so this has really become, you know, three years worth of work to be able to then share the programs that I've created with, you know, the masses, you know, some more people, maybe not everyone can work with me personally, but they now can have some insights into my background and methodologies for this program that I created. 
Yeah, that was actually a, a huge question I had about the programs and the book and everything. So, because there's so many different intermittent fasting approaches. And obviously one of the biggest questions we get on the intermittent fasting podcast and just in general is, is fasting safe for women and how should women approach fasting? So in your experience working with women, like the IF45 plan, like did that precede the book? What IF windows did you ultimately find work best for women? And should there be concerns about fasting for women? Like, what are your thoughts on that? Like, and like 16, eight versus one meal a day, all the plans. Yeah, no, I think it gets so much more confusing with women because, you know, I would say postmenopausal women and men have a much easier time making fasting work for themselves. I, I think the beauty of women that are still in their reproductive years that are still getting their menstrual cycle there's a there are a couple extra steps you have to think about and so you know to answer your initial question i think an 186 is a good starting point for women i think overall obviously each woman is her own individual you have to look at a lot of different factors to determine what is the best way to proceed and there, let's be clear, there are times when we shouldn't fast as women. And then there are times it's completely reasonable. What I don't like is when men try to tell women that fasting is unsafe. That actually makes me a little bit upset and cranky. I have to be honest with you because it's, it's very reductionist. I, I think we as a culture want to, we want to boil everything down that there's this one size fits all. And I would argue that an 18-6 is a good starting point I'm not a huge fan of OMAD for women, largely because I feel as if most women can't get enough macronutrients in in that feeding window. Now, I know there are men out there on, you know, Twitter is a good example. There's a lot of men on Twitter that fast and they'll say, oh, my OMAD, I get 2000 calories in a meal. And I just think to myself, there's just no way in heck that could ever happen for me. I, there's no way I could get 2000 calories into a, into one meal. I wouldn't be able to move. I would probably vomit. So I think that it, OMAD, I like OMAD if it's around a holiday or maybe you've overindulged the day before, but I think it can set women up in a cycle where they're just not going, get, going to get enough macronutrients, not enough protein, not enough healthy fats, and certainly not enough healthy carbohydrates. And so I, I think that you know, when people talk about OMAD for women, it's always with, I always like want to put an asterisk to say, you know, let's clarify that. Like, is that something you can do as needed? Sure, it's probably okay. Do I occasionally do it? Yes. But it is not something I do on a day-to-day -day basis. And I think the big thing about this book in particular is that I want people to have a starting point. Like, here's a reasonable starting point to navigate success with this as a strategy that is specific to where you are in your menstrual cycle, that is specific to where you are lifestyle-wise, uh, and that even includes this nebulous period of perimenopause that a lot of people, including myself, had never been aware of. No one had ever talked to me about it until I literally fell into it. And I think that that's really a good starting place for people to say, this is what we're, we're going to work you towards. And then once you have success with that, then there's all these other options. It's almost like, and this is a terrible example, it's almost like you go to a buffet. And the buffet for fasting, you get lots of different options. But as you're moving towards that buffet, you have a starting point. You need to be able to succeed with this basic 18-6 before you open up into a lot of more challenging fasts or varying, varying your fast significantly. And it's like I always say, we want to start with the basics. We want to ensure that we have great success with those. 
before we start entering more advanced strategies. So funny that you started saying the thing about what frustrates you. And I was like, I know what she's going to say. (laughs) Um, And I'm also, I'm really glad that you clarified about defining one meal a day. Like for example, I always say that I do one meal a day, but I'm not eating that one meal a day for me is minimum usually four hours. So it's actually more like 24 and sometimes it's even longer. So I think that's actually really important to clarify. So something I love that you you open up the book talking about the differences between men and women. And like, I learned so much about how, you know, women are different biologically. Like you pointed out that our brains are actually younger than men. And you pointed out how we actually need more sleep because our brains are more complicated than men, Um, which I, that works for me. But so just in the, the differences between men and women. And then when it comes to fasting and eating and just for for listeners, I'm just, again, I'm going to refer you to this book because it goes into the, the details of the actual plan and what to do and the recommendations. And there is, there is a path to follow. So definitely get the book because the path is not going to be all in today's conversation. But that said, how intuitive, because you talk, for example, about how to eat according to your cycle, or you just talked about right now about fasting, you know, how it might change based on your age and where you are in your, your life cycle. How intuitive is that? Like, do we need a plan? Or like when it comes to food and exercise and fasting for your cycle, for example, do we need an actual plan on paper that we implement? Or could we just be like really intuitive? Like I'm craving these type of foods now, and I want to fast like this now, like how intuitive can we be versus needing a plan? I think that's a really, a really great distinction. I I feel like many, many women are not intuitive or they're not connected to their intuition. And that's not a criticism. I, I think we've gotten to the point with our patient population that we've been telling people what to think, what to do for such a long period of time that that women's intuition that we should lean into we have largely gotten disconnected from it. So I would love if every woman that I worked with would really lean into their intuition. But I do find that there are people who, are, who don't trust their intuition. They're not ready to do that. And so this is a, a perfect example of, of why having something on paper can provide the reinforcement, the encouragement, the support that they may need, because maybe they're not at a point where they feel they may not lean into what, what foods make them feel good. They may be on synthetic hormones that make it more challenging for them to acknowledge that, you know, there's a follicular cycle, there's an ovulatory cycle, there's a luteal phase uh, in our menstrual cycle, or they could be in this, you know, as I refer to effectually, the nebulous period of perimenopause five to 10 years prior to going through menopause. And I think on so many levels, it has been more my experience working with females that they initially want the structure and accountability of a plan as opposed to just barreling forward and saying, okay, today I'm craving meat, so I'm going to have more meat. Or I'm noticing I'm craving more you know, starchy carbohydrates, I might be close to my menstrual cycle, so let me lean into that. So I think it's a good starting point to say that having a plan available to people can be very reassuring. And also the knowledge and recognition that on so many levels, having that information is really validating to say, hey, no one ever told me that I needed to look out for these things. So let me just give you a heads up. Because as an example, so the first two weeks from the day we start bleeding till right before ovulation, that's when estrogen predominates in our menstrual cycle. 
And that's the time that we can push the lever on a lot of things. We can do harder workouts. We can do longer fast once we've gotten the basics. And it's a time when sleep, I don't want to say sleep isn't important. We may not need as much sleep. We might have more energy. And so really leaning into the fact that, you know, this menstrual cycle or this infradian rhythm, this 28 day period of time, when we are, when we're having this menstrual cycle is really a time to just acknowledge that through different phases, we have to honor our bodies in different ways. So I I think that the, it's probably more the minority of women that don't feel like they need as much structure, but it's been my experience, especially when trying a new strategy, especially with a lot of misinformation that's out there. I'm sure you would agree with me. There's a lot of misinformation, fear-mongering, et cetera, about women and fasting, really acknowledging our own unique needs and our own bio-individuality so that we can ensure that we're getting the best results. We're getting the best feedback from our bodies. And so eventually we'll get to a point where we can lean into that intuition confidently and as opposed to leaning into it skeptically. I agree. And even for myself, when I started intermittent fasting, I started with a regimented plan that I stuck to. And when I first started, I mean, paleo, for example, I was, you know, following more of a regimen than I do now. And now it is quote more intuitive. So eating for your cycle, because you dive deep into the book Again, it's very laid out and you talk about the specific nutrients and the different foods to focus on for the different parts of your cycle. So two-part question. One, just for listeners who are not familiar, could we have a little educational moment where you just briefly outline the four phases of the cycle? And then two, finding the foods that work for the different phases. What is that based on? Is that in the clinical literature? Is that based on working with your patients? I'm just curious where that knowledge comes from. Yeah. I mean, first and foremost, there's not enough research on cycling women. I think this is something that I'm sure you have found to be the case as well. And, you know, for me, after working with thousands of women, so let me just back up. I My whole background is in ER medicine and cardiology. And so over the last six years, having the opportunity to use a lot of trial and error, but also leaning into to looking to see what my peers, you know, other healthcare professionals, MDs, NPs, nurses, et cetera, that are working with women and seeing what works successfully for them. So it could be an N of a couple thousand, but it hasn't necessarily been done in the clinical research. But there is good information about the infradian rhythm. There is good information about ways to honor where we are in our menstrual cycle there is good information on what happens to our bodies as we go through our menstrual cycle. But the concept of lifestyle medicine, the concept of marrying stress management, sleep quality, nutrition, exercise, et cetera, that is a newer kind of methodology. That's a newer perspective on how to honor our bodies as women. And so I do think research opportunities will be forthcoming I think, unfortunately, there isn't enough research done on cycling women. I think there's been for many, many years a fear of it's too complicated. There's too much to it. I mean, there are researchers out there. I can think of one in particular. She's a female PhD. She works with female athletes and she is not pro-fasting. But I do respect the work that she's doing. And we do acknowledge that during the menstrual cycle, a lot of her work is what I kind of leaned into looking at you know, how do we support our bodies at different phases 
exercise-wise throughout our cycle. So there's good research there in terms of exercise and women's physiology, but certainly not enough and not enough done on humans versus lab animals. Like you and I both know, and, and probably many of the listeners do as well, because they listen to you know the high quality podcasts that you have, that you can't compare per se lab animals, ovulatory cycles, lactation and pregnancy to a human's. And so that's where the waters get a little muddied. And I always say anecdotal evidence is not, is not inferior in the sense that, you know, it's not a randomized controlled trial, but it's a good starting point to say, this is information that we should be taking to whether it's a research institution or a research facility and saying like, we really think this is information that needs to be followed up on. Like, here's my hypothesis and let's see if we can create a research model around this that might be able to yield and validate the findings that many of us are experiencing. It's interesting. I recently had a a great podcast with Megan Ramos, who, you know, works with Dr. Jason Fung. And she and I were both talking about the fact that it's, it's upsetting that so many women are fearful to, to fast, even at a small amount of time because of bad information that's out there. And I think that if we were in a position where we had really good research done on women throughout their lifetime, not just obese pen- postmenopausal women, which there's plenty of research there, I, I think that that would put some of these fears to rest. And I, I do want to believe that they're well-meaning individuals that are out there fear-mongering, but, but I do have moments where I just kind of shake my head and, and I think to myself, if we look at the lack of metabolic flexibility, how incredibly unhealthy we are as Americans we should be doing everything we can to find strategies to help men and women become healthier. And so why, what's the harm in trying? You know, that, that's kind of where I come from. And I think the other piece of, the, of that is I've just watched people get sick, sicker over the last 20 years. And that to me is so disheartening as a nurse practitioner that we, you know, clinically don't do a very good job with prevention. And so if there's a strategy that women can utilize that can help them become healthier, more metabolically flexible, I'm all for it. But I think that's a great question. It really speaks to the fact that we need to be demanding more. We as women need to be demanding more of you know, the research community, asking them to not be fearful to, u- to utilize women at peak fertility years and even beyond for research purposes. You know, Don't just use it on lab animals, which I know that can be helpful. It's a good starting point, but there are plenty of clinicians like myself, that have just seen such significant changes in people's health and their, you know, their, not only that, their biophysical markers and their sleep quality and so many things that are so important in terms of lifestyle medicine. Yeah. Just speaking to that with the rodent studies, and we might've talked about this last time you came on, but I think it's very valuable to have animal studies and you have to start somewhere. And, you know, if you're studying something like longevity and in rodents. That would be easier to study because you could see how things just affect longevity. It's a broader thing that's not affected by, let me further clarify, I'm not clarifying myself here. Let's compare studying longevity and a rodent to like fertility. So longevity is more a broader thing you could see is the rodent living longer. But then when it comes to fertility, so like a rodent fertility cycle, like they're reproducing all the time. And so they're much more sensitive to things that would throw that off. And then on top of that, fasting, this is the thing that gets me the most is that when they test fasting in a rodent, it'll be like 
what a normal fast for us, like a 24 hour fast, that's the equivalent of days in a rodent. So basically the majority of the literature, I believe on like fertility and in rodents and fasting is not intermittent fasting. It's like the equivalent of extended fasting. So I just think that's really important to point out, which actually speaking of extended fasting, what do you qualify as extended fasting? Well, I was about to say what, what in your, in your vernacular is extended fasting? You know, I think when we're talking about 24 hours or longer, I, I know that there's a lot of interest in people doing three to five day fasts. And it was interesting. I was listening to Dr. Ted Naiman and Maria Emmerich having a conversation about this. And, and Ted, who's an engineer and also a physician said, there's this law of diminishing returns when people are already lean and they want to fast for really long periods of time. And, and I thought to myself, you know, that really makes sense. So I think if someone is obese, metabolically unhealthy, I think longer fast can be a springboard into a consistent fasting regimen. I per se am not a huge fan of long fast. I, I think it has something to do with the fact that in 2019, I wasn't able to eat for 13 days involuntarily because I was so sick. And since that time, I haven't done anything more than a 24 or 30 hour fast. And so I think it can be helpful for specific purposes. You know, a lot of people talk about, and I know you've had Walter Longo on, you know, stem cell activation when you're getting to that three to five day period, you know, wanting to kind of improve gut health and, and change the composition of the gut microbiome. I'm not a huge fan of people doing consistent long fasts. And I do have women, I always say they're the overachievers and I, I value that and I'm, I'm not being critical at all. The women who start right out of the gate and they're like, I want to do a 48-hour fast. I want to do a 36-hour fast. I want to do a 24-hour fast. I'm like, okay, let's let's ensure we can get through the basics first. And then as you have success, yes, opening that up. For some people that are plateau busting, it can be a great opportunity for people to do a 24-hour fast every week. But I think it really ultimately depends on where are you in your menstrual cycle? What are your goals? What are you hoping to achieve? I think the more metabolically flexible you are, this is my personal, you know, my N of a couple thousand, the more metabolically flexible you are, I think it becomes this law of diminishing returns in terms of what are you looking to obtain from doing longer fasts. And we know that, you know, digestive rest, you know, bumps in autophagy, growth hormone, et cetera. I mean, those are all wonderful things to want to focus on, but I think you have to be careful. And especially if someone's peak fertility years, and I say 35 and under predominantly, and especially if you're very lean, I just think those longer fasts can set your body up for putting you into this feast famine mindset. You know, we know that the hypothalamus pituitary is very sensitive to nutrient depletion. And so I, I really think you have to be careful in that age range. But I know we could springboard into a thousand different conversations from here. I'm not opposed to prolonged fasting but I do think people have to be very clear about their goals. I think they have to be very, very transparent about where they are in their life cycle. Are you peak fertility years, perimenopause, menopause? Menopausal women can generally get away with as much as men. Our hormones are a little more stable. But being really honest and transparent about where you are, I think, is really critically important. I'm really glad that you touched on the the potential sensitivity of women to fasting. So working with all of your patients that you've worked with, as far as like things that affect a woman's cycle, so 
fasting, calories, over-exercising, undernutrition, maybe stress, lack of sleep. Is there one that tends to cause problems more for women when it comes to cycle issues or being too, quote, restrictive, or is it really an individual case-by-case basis? You know, there's definitely factors that I think are bigger insults to the body than others. And so stress and sleep, like how many women don't sleep well and they think it's no big deal? Well, what you get away with in your 20s and 30s, you oftentimes can't in your 40s and 50s. And a lot of that's just the changes that occur physiologically. I would say the people I get most concerned about are the over-exercisers who undernourish their bodies and then don't have they don't have proper mechanisms to address sleep and they sure as heck don't manage their stress properly. I would say those are probably the four big things that I look at. Obviously, it's a case-by-case basis, but I think on so many levels, we have primed our patients to think this way. You know, we tell them calories in, calories out. We tell them you have to over-exercise to deal with the surplus of calories you just took in. We've been giving bad information out to our patients for a long period of time. So, of course, in their minds, it makes sense. I'm just going to do two hours of cardio to counteract the you know, deluge of crap I ate when I went out last night. And it's this kind of, this concept of punishing our bodies, this self-flagellatory, you know, mindset that is so toxic. Like I would say it's that toxic mentality that we have unfortunately ingrained, not only with our patient population, but also in our culture, you know, what's the newest box of crap that's out there or potion or powder that's somehow going to magically make everything work. We want fast results. We don't want anything that's going to take a long period of time. And we've unfortunately, and I say we as clinicians, we as clinicians have contributed to this. So, you know, Melanie, I think that's such a great question. And I I think bio-individuality rules, so you'll hear me use that term a lot in the book. Ultimately, it's, it's really dependent on who we are as individuals. I could also add into there, like, how lean are you? I have a lot of women who are very lean, like their body fat is nearly non-existent. They might also be like on the precipice of amenorrhea where they're not even getting their menstrual cycles, or they could even be in their 30s and 40s and they're skipping cycles regularly. And one thing I want to emphasize is that I want women to use their menstrual cycle as a barometer for how much stress that they are putting themselves under, whether it's physiologic, physical, et cetera. Because if you are getting your menstrual cycle every month, great. If you start fasting or you're already you know, not regularly getting your menstrual cycle and you don't know why, and you add in fasting, that might be the tipping point for your body to say, time out, <laughs> you're, you're not taking care of me. And so therefore I'm going to, you know, put the brakes on everything. Cause I'm thinking that there's not enough, there's not enough sleep. There's not enough stress management. There's not enough nutrition coming into this body. So I want to make sure that there's no way I have to support the potential pregnancy. And so I I, I think that, you know, really adding into that equation is leaning in and being honest and saying like, what's my menstrual cycle like? Because when a woman tells me she starts menstruating or excuse me, she starts fasting and loses her menstrual cycle, that's like a danger sign. Like to me, that's like, we got to back up the bus. We need to like, look at everything you're doing. We need to work on making sure your body's properly nourished on every level. And I don't want to sound woo woo, but on so many levels, it's not just the food we put in our mouth. It's like, you know, the toxicities in our environment and, you know, are we being kind to ourselves? Because I think on many levels, people come to fasting women in particular, because they want to change the body composition. They want to lose weight. 
And that becomes their very myopic view of that's health is looking at the number on the scale. And so I think that can be, you know, profoundly unhealthy. It's like, okay, let's, let's make sure we get healthy to lose weight. Like that needs to be the mentality as opposed to intermittent fasting isn't working for me because I am not losing weight. It's like, wait, no, we got to, we have to kind of reframe these thoughts so that we can put ourselves in a healthier state of, of mind before attempting to do any of that. Yeah, that was one of the things I loved about your book so much is just how comprehensive it is on the full picture of everything. So it's not just the fasting, it's the mindset, it's the the diet, the sleep, it's all the things. It's interesting that you were saying about how some of your patients you know, are really lean and the factor that that might play because I was actually reading a study and it was looking at the effects on women's cycles in, I'd have to find it. I think it was endurance athletes. And what was really interesting was getting amenorrhea did not relate to the amount of exercise. It correlated instead to their body weight. So if they were too low of a weight, the level of exercise, it was a problem compared to women that had much more ample fat, they could exercise a lot more and it not affect the cycle. I almost didn't want to mention that study though, because then that makes it sound like it's a um, blanket statement, but <laughs> when, it, when it's going to be individual. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting. Speaking of hormonal issues with women, and I'd love to go into perimenopause and menopause and all of that, but just in general, so you dive deep deep, deep into all of the hormones, which made me so excited because I, I, I love learning. Like when I was reading the part of the book that was going over, you know, insulin and cortisol and estrogen and progesterone and testosterone and DHEA and all the things I was like, I was just loving it. I was like, this is so, this is amazing. So comprehensive. I learned so much. So, okay. Hormonal issues. There are so many hormonal issues out there, you know, PMS, PMDD, PCOS, there's, I'm sure we'll go into perimenopause, things like that. Are hormonal issues inevitable? Do all women experience them? How common are they? And with your patients, do you see that they necessarily do correlate to lifestyle or can some women be doing all the things and still experience hormonal issues? I think that's a great question, Melanie. I, I think in our increasingly kind of toxic world that we live in, and, and you know, when I say toxic, I'm talking about things we're exposed to in our environment, our personal care products, and our nutrition. We're bombarded by toxins that can influence our hormones, how they're balanced, you know, adding in the volume of individuals that are on synthetic hormones. I mean, I'll be the first person to say I was put on synthetic hormones in early adulthood because I had amenorrheic cycles, probably because I, I have very mild PCOS, which is a whole separate conversation. And so I, I think being on oral contraceptives, as an example, didn't allow me to ever deal with what was really of issue for me as an individual. And so I, I think that there's it is a byproduct of our westernized lifestyle that most, if not all, individuals, and again, we've talked, we've touched on a little bit about metabolic flexibility, that most, if not all of us, are not as hormonally balanced as we should be. And so many people assume whatever symptoms they're experiencing, bad PMS, you know, sig- even more significant PMDD or having luteal phase defects where they have this significant precipitous drop in progesterone during their luteal phase, 
that begets the PMS, the PMDD, also, you know, can create some menstrual irregularities, can create this estrogen dominance where people have very heavy PS cycles and weight gain and breast tenderness, et cetera. And we're just talking about people still at their peak for fertile years. So I, I do think it's a byproduct of the environment that we that we live in in this kind of traditional westernized society, not to mention the fact that most people are not eating to nourish their bodies. And they, and it's, again, it's not because they don't want to, it's, they've been conditioned that everything in the supermarket is healthy, that everything that is in a box, a bag and or a can is, is nourishment. And I know you and I would, would argue against that, but it's also, you know, the information that we get from the FDA, the USDA, the, you know, the food guide pyramid is now kind of spawned into my plate and it's the imbalanced macros where people are encouraged to eat heart healthy grains or they're encouraged to eat what i think is dessert for breakfast and these are further contributing to these hormonal this hormonal dysregulation so you know add in you know we're like a hedonistic culture where we have accessibility to information 24/7 it's very different than when I was growing up, you know, the, the TV went off at like one o'clock in the morning and there was no cable TV when I was really young. And so now we have, you know, we could be on our computers or our iPad or our iPhone or social media all the time. And so our bodies are just inundated with artificial light and all of these factors that disrupt you know, this orchestration between all these hormones, which are governed by, you know, our brain and the endocrine system. So that's kind of an overly simplistic way of saying, I, I think most, if not all of us are navigating our 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, and beyond with some degree of hormonal imbalances. It may not be until we find a symptom that's particularly troubling. For a lot of women, it's the weight gain piece. Like when you can't, when you have what I call weight loss resistance, when that happens, then people start digging. They're like, this is not acceptable. Something must be off. And they're told maybe they've got a thyroid problem or, you know, again, the synthetic hormones are offered or surgical interventions. I mean, that certainly was the case with me and perimenopause. And so I, I think on so many levels, it doesn't have to be that way, but it would be, it would not be the norm for women who I work with. And again, this is, I'm, I'm in a niche within my industry. It would not be the norm that women wouldn't be coming to me with specific problems like sleep problems you know, waking up in the middle of the night, they've got really heavy periods, they have stubborn weight gain, they have energy issues. And those are all a sign of hormonal imbalances. And so on every level that I can think of, I, I think our modern day lifestyle is creating, quote unquote, the perfect environment for these hormonal imbalances. I think it's, it's more the norm that we are conditioned to believe whether it's the limiting belief of, oh, this is just the way things are because I'm X age, whether it's 35, 40, 45, 50 or beyond, or this is just the way things are because now I'm a parent, or this is just the way things are because I have a very demanding job and a, you know, a travel schedule and don't even mention the fact we're all in you know, year two of a global pandemic. And so we're in unprecedented times. And I do think our lifestyle is a reflection of the fact that we are so far off base as a culture in terms of really honoring the way that our bodies are designed to thrive and not just survive. Like that is a huge distinction for me. And I feel like on every level, I've been able to see it from being a clinician in a broken medical system to being a clinician that's an entrepreneur and seeing things from a different angle. 
And in many, many ways, we have created this environment that our patients are living in and they're not thriving in. You know, most of them are not. They're, they're, they're feeling stuck. And so, you know, it, it's an unfortunate situation. But I think as more of us become educated and you know, obviously you have such a great platform for this as well, Melanie, being able to help educate people about, you know, all the things in their environment and things that we can be doing to making ourselves healthier. It's we're starting to slowly kind of turn the corner on this. I think in years to come, women are going to be better educated about the changes that are going to occur and be able to do more to support themselves. Yeah. The the nuance of that answer that I love is that it's both in a way inevitable, you know, like you just said, our environment is so toxic. I mean, even like we're born into this because, because we know now that, you know, the stress and the lifestyles of our mom and, and even prior generations carries through to future generations. And so on the one hand, it's like we're in this inevitable soup of toxicity, but at the same time, there's great agency and we're not, you know, destined to that. Like we can make changes. So I, I love that so much. One of my favorite things about your book that I'm sure listeners will love, love, love is that in the book, Cynthia goes through all of these different hormones, how they affect the body. And then she actually talks about how fasting affects those hormones, which was just so incredible. So a question about fasting and affecting hormonal issues, because there are so many, like I said, so many different things that women experience, but I think there are two, like there are two that I'd love to touch on, two things that I think a lot of women experience. And one of them, it's sort of generally accepted that intermittent fasting helps it. And the other it's sort of generally accepted that intermittent fasting might hurt it. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on both of those. One would be PCOS and the other would be thyroid issues. And I'm just using that as like an example. But so like for those issues, for example, what are your thoughts on fasting and those? Yeah, no, great question. So PCOS is, you know, something that I unknowingly had. I, even though I, I'm a thin phenotype, so that I'm, I'm a thin woman, probably contributed to why I struggled with infertility, getting pregnant with my children. So I feel like, you know, I especially feel this in my heart. And at the basis of PCOS or polycystic ovarian syndrome is the fact that most women are insulin resistant or have some degree of insulin resistance. And we know that changing our diet, not only changing our diet, going to a more nutrient dense whole food diet focusing on, you know, animal-based protein and non-starchy vegetables and healthy fats along with periods of eating less often can be hugely instrumental in rebalancing insulin is just one the the more common phenotype with PCOS is to have someone who's obese or someone who's overweight and so I've had such incredible success working with women who are at this unique situation. And because my heart goes out to them, because I, I know what that was like, you know, that impacted my fertility. That's really how it manifested. And why I was on oral contraceptives for a thousand years, because it was quote unquote, fixing the problem. No, really, it was just putting a bandaid on it. So I do feel that in particular, you know, when you're looking at PCOS, where typically you've got insulin resistance, you generally, in a lot of people, your androgen levels, your testosterone levels are higher than normal. I do see some resolution, especially with weight loss that you are. So let me back up a little bit. When we're looking at adipose tissue, which is in and of itself, its own organ in the body, it's so sophisticated. It's not just fat. It has so much signaling that goes on and inflammatory markers. But we know that many, many women, when they lose, when they lose weight, they are, you know, they're, they're priming this estrogen pump. And so 
what ends up happening with PCOS oftentimes is you have this aromatization. So you have all this testosterone that is, you know, going from being testosterone aromatized into estrogen, and you can get this relative estrogen dominance. And so with weight loss, you are getting this net resultant lowered levels of estradiol, the predominant form of estrogen in our bodies prior to going through menopause. And so I think that it is critically important when someone has PCOS to consider looking very closely at nutrition, looking very closely at weight reduction. And one of the ways you can do that is by intermittent fasting. And it doesn't have to be done excessively. You could even just start with, you know, 12 and 12 or 12 and 14, you know, 12 hours fast with a 12 hour eating window, just as a starter, just kind of meandering to that. Now, I also coincidentally also have an underactive thyroid, which I think is a byproduct of the age and stage of life that I'm in, it's it's much more common as women are navigating perimenopause, the five to 10 years, to see episodes of underactive thyroid. And, and the predominant reason why women will develop hypothyroidism in any age group is related to an autoimmune issue called Hashimoto's thyroiditis. In fact, it's very few people. It's like one to 2% of people with hypothyroidism don't have Hashimoto's, even if you've had negative antibodies like me. And so when I was about 44, that's when I was diagnosed. And you know, people ask me all the time, do you think that fasting, do you think that's what drove the hypothyroidism? And I always say no, because autoimmune issues are almost always driven by gut health issues. And I've had two other autoimmune issues. So once you have one, you just are more prone to others, which is unfortunate, but it's, it's, that's even based on research. And so I, I think that the average person who has an underactive thyroid or an overactive thyroid, like Graves' disease, you can successfully navigate fasting, but it always goes back to those pillars that we've talked about earlier, stress management, sleep quality, nutrition, really looking, not over-exercising, because you can have hypothyroidism and still exercise, still get high quality sleep, still manage your stress properly, and you can do beautifully. But if you have hypothyroidism and you get less than six hours a night of sleep and your stress is out of control and you're you know, the, the CrossFit or Orange Theory bunny and you're doing that five days a week and there are plenty of women doing it and you over-restrict your, your macros, then you are setting yourself up for tanking your thyroid. Tanking obviously is not a clinical term, but you're not gonna do your thyroid any favors. So I really want women to understand that the endocrine system in the body really is this complex interaction between our body's perception of stressors, sleep, stress, management, nutrition, exercise, and our response to it. So you can successfully navigate fasting with hypothyroidism or thyroid disorders, or you could also make it harder on your body. And the other thing to touch on is that there's a lot of misinformation about you need so much carbohydrate in order to go from inactive to active thyroid hormone. I, I really don't necessarily believe that you know, it has to be that you have to have so much carbohydrate in order to have this proper conversion. I think it's more a reflection of your degree of metabolic flexibility. So let me be clear about this. When you are obese or overweight, you're not as metabolically flexible. And so the choice of carbohydrates for you, it's going to be very focused on portion and the quality, even more so than for anyone else. So it's not to suggest that you can't be lower carb or even ketogenic and also fast and also do all these other things but a lot of it's bio-individual, but you also have to be very, very attuned to like how flexible is your body? Because what I might be able to get away with as a middle-aged woman might be very different than someone else at the same age stage who maybe hasn't taken as good a care of themselves. So it's really 
getting very honest with yourself about what is, what's the lifestyle pieces? How well are you taking care of yourself before you add in another, another stressor? And so we have to really define intermittent fasting as a hormetic stress. It's, you know, the, the beneficial stress in the right amount at the right time can be beautiful for honoring our bodies. But if it's not the right time, if it's too much stress, if our body perceives that it's under threat, it is not going to do, do well with that type of stress. So really being very, very clear. But I do think both PCOS and thyroid issues can do beautifully with fasting, but you have to look at all those other pieces of the puzzle as well. Hi friends. I'm about to tell you how to get free Manuka honey. And if you know what that means, then you know what that means. And if you don't know what that means, I'm about to tell you what that means. So back in the darkest days of my digestive issues and chronic fatigue and all the things, I was researching anything and everything to try and get my health back. And that's when I first came across the concept of Manuka honey. So I knew honey was supposed to have health benefits but there was something special about Manuka honey in particular. It is a special type of honey only found in the remote and magical forests of New Zealand. The bees actually feed on the highly active nectar of the Manuka tea tree, and they make a super honey that is honestly unlike anything you have ever seen or tasted before. So Manuka honey is a super honey because of its unique antioxidant and prebiotic properties. So honey in general has those properties. Honey also has hydrogen peroxide activity, which can have a beneficial effect on your gut and health, but Manuka honey in particular has a different natural antibacterial compound called MGO that only comes from the nectar of this Manuka tea tree. They actually measure it. I think it's really funny. They call it non-peroxide activity. So the nutrients in Manuka honey can help support optimal immune and digestive health. I personally found that when I was using Manuka honey, it had an incredible effect on my gut and I became really obsessed with finding the best of the best because there is a lot of controversy out there about Manuka honey and it can be difficult to make sure that you're getting a certified verified source that is actually the stuff that you want. That's why I was so, so thrilled when Manukora reached out to me. They make a Manuka honey. And what I'm really excited about is they have all of the transparency that I'm looking for. When I did the onboarding call with the brand, I was so impressed with their story, their authenticity, their knowledge, and their mission with Manuka honey. Their honey can be traced back to a single origin through a unique QR authenticity platform. I love that. The honey is free from environmental toxins, free of glyphosate residue, non-GMO, gluten-free, it's raw, and like I said, 100% traceable. They're also a certified B Corp. And something super important to me, they really take care of their bees. So the beekeepers actually manage the hive numbers to ensure that the bees have access to diverse pollen sources and plenty of nectar to feed on to avoid any risk of overstocking the bees. They're never fed refined sugar. There's no excessive hive transportation. The hives don't need to be shifted around for pollination practices. They also help support local communities. Like I said, I've been a fan of Manuka honey for so long, so it's really exciting to partner with this company. Plus, the honey tastes delicious. You can incorporate Manukora into your food choices, into your diet, or you can use it as a supplement, taking some of it daily to help support your immunity, your GI health, and so much more. Manukora's Super Honey is available in a range of easy-to-use formats, including jars, squeeze bottles, and 100% completely compostable packets. Friends, that is so hard to find. So you can eat it straight or add it to your favorite food or beverage. 
If you head to manukora.com slash IF podcast, you'll automatically get a free pack of honey sticks with your order. That is a $15 value. That's M-A-N-U-K-O-R-A.com slash IF podcast to get a free pack of honey sticks with your order. Friends, it's called honey with superpowers for good reason. So get on it and try this delicious, creamy caramel honey, and you won't look back with Manukora. That's manukora.com slash IF podcast for free Manuka honey sticks. And we'll put all this information in the show notes. It is really interesting that at least when I would review the clinical literature on fasting and women, that there were a lot of studies on PCOS and women, which I always thought was really interesting. And they're pretty much favorable (laughs) for it. So I have some more questions about the hormones, but since you did touch on the macros just now and the carb intake and all of that, what are your thoughts on a low carb diet and in your IF45 plan, which includes three phases, like the induction phase that you have, what is the role of carbs and low carb? It's a good question. I I do think so. If we look at statistically, I think it's a 2018 study from UNC. And at that time, this is pre-pandemic, it was 88.2% of Americans are not metabolically healthy. So when people come to IF45, the first thing I say is, listen, if the average American is consuming 200 to 300 grams of carbs, and that's conservatively per day, we can all do if we really want to, to get our bodies primed to be able to fast, there are a couple of things we need to do. And one of them is reducing our carbohydrate intake and really focusing on whole carbohydrates. And that means the unprocessed varieties. I'm not anti-carb. I do eat carbohydrates. I want to be really clear about that. But in that induction phase, it's really to get people ready so that when they start fasting, they're going to have better success. And so I'm not anti-carb. I do think low-carbohydrate diets can be very helpful for women, especially if they're wanting to change body composition, wanting to get, you know, wanting to lose weight. And for a lot of people, unfortunately, they've had the complete opposite. For most of their adult life, they've sat down with a big plate of pasta. They've had bread with every meal. They've had rice or grains with every meal, or they've had unfettered access to tropical fruit. It's just an example. And it's never a judgment. I'm just being observational. And I find that women that are able to limit or moderate their carbohydrates and really focus on animal-based protein and healthy fats are going to have much more satiety. They're going to be much more satiated. They are going to be much more successful by readjusting those macros. And and for a lot of people, that's why we have a whole week of the induction because it, it can be very, very challenging. There are a lot of people that are really uh, emotional eaters. Again, not a criticism, just an observation. So I I think on many levels, it gets people really ready to understand like we are going to learn how to fuel our bodies in a way that we are going to feel full, satisfied, and be able to step away from the table as opposed to feeling like we have to constantly snack because I'm sure you see this on with, you know, the women that you interact with as well, that we, we've been conditioned that we need to have three meals a day and snacks and, and we have to like rip the bandaid off and start with the basics. And so it's really, I get very granular. Like these are the things we need to do. We have to limit our carbs. We need to stop snacking. I want you to adjust your macros because I want people to have a lifelong strategy that they can embrace as opposed to this, you know, unfortunate, it's unfortunately it's huge here in the United States the latest, greatest thing that's going to help them lose weight really fast. And they're not going to be able to sustain their results because yo-yo dieting, as you and I both know, is detrimental metabolically to our bodies. 
Oh, I think it is so detrimental. And it reminds me of like Joel Green's work. And I know you interviewed him as well. And like his book is like mind blown moment after mind blown moment. But he talks about the actual, and I'll put a link in the show notes to the two part episode that I did with him. After reading his book, I finally understood why yo yo dieting makes it harder and harder to lose weight. And it basically has to do with how it affects something called the extracellular matrix surrounding fat cells. And they become stiffer the more that you lose and regain and lose and regain. And it's just really, really fascinating. I think when I read his book, Melanie, I literally, like my chin was on the table. And I remember saying to you, I think now for, I'm sure everyone that listens to you knows that you are like a copious researcher But I think I told you, I think I went through 20 pages of a legal notepad taking notes. And my husband was like, what are you doing? And I said, this man has written this book and it's completely blowing my mind. Like it's so different than anything I've heard anywhere else. Yeah, he's just an exceptional. And I love that there are people out there that are, I would call disruptors who are not embracing this mindset of cognitive dissonance and are willing to think outside the box because that's really what we want people to do is you know, really find something that works for you to keep you as healthy as possible. It's so funny. He's the only time that I emailed ahead of time and I said, can we record for four hours so so that I can make it a two-part episode? And he was so kind and agreed. And we had, I think we had like technical difficulties at the beginning. So I think it was like a (laughs) five-hour experience. So I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Going back to the hormones, there were some that I wanted to touch on specifically. Cortisol is a big one. And I think (sighs) cortisol is one of the ones I think cortisol and insulin are probably the two that, well, there might be more, but maybe the two that I see the most as far as people being really aware of them and thinking, even if they haven't tested, thinking in their head, I have high insulin or I have high cortisol. So cortisol. One thing I love is you actually, when you talk about cortisol, you actually start by talking about the benefits of cortisol and you kind of dismantle the idea out there that cortisol is just a, you know, a bad hormone. So could you talk a little bit about cortisol, why it actually is beneficial, but then the problems when it goes awry, specifically how it can encourage, you know, visceral fat storage and things like that. So cortisol. Yeah, cortisol. I mean, I feel like cortisol is kind of like the bully on the block, meaning it's really poor. It's gotten so such bad press. It needs a good PR group to to come in and swoop in and help it out. I, I think when we when we think about cortisol, cortisol is designed to be an emergency backup system in the body. You know, we talk about sympathetic the sympathetic nervous system, which is part of the autonomic nervous system. And just acknowledging that cortisol's role predominantly is to be part of that fight or flight. You know, you're being chased by a, a saber-toothed tiger. You know, it shuts, it makes you be able to focus. You know, it shuts down digestion. You can't stop to poop. You aren't going to stop to have sex. Your body is, you know, your body is being fueled with the energy to get away from this threat. The the common misunderstanding about cortisol, though, is that in our overharried overstressed lives, you know, very westernized lives where we're constantly in this hedonistic culture where we're just inundated by information 24-7, our bodies can no longer differentiate between acute stress, I'm being chased by a rabid animal, versus chronic stress. And that's the first tipping point that is problematic about cortisol. Cortisol does a lot of things. It frees up, you know, glucose so that we can be fueled. 
it's when I tell people when they, when they're dealing with chronic stress, the things that will show up for them, they're not going to sleep as well because think about it physiologically. You're not, if you're being if you're being, if you're fleeing danger, your body's not going to allow you to fall asleep properly. You're not going to digest your food. You can't properly detoxify you're, you're not going to poop. So you're going to deal with that as well. And that's a whole separate conversation that we could have. Cause I, the whole constipation thing is fascinating, but we think about the fact that, you know, chronic stress, it's going to impact the reproductive system because our bodies are going to perceive that we're under, you know, this, this surveillance of threat. And so I also think about the fact that, you know, as an example, people talk about the cortisol belly, you know, why do I have, you know, abdominal fat and I just remind them that we have 40 times more receptors in the abdomen for cortisol. So if you're really chronically stressed and chronically, you know, dealing with high cortisol levels, at least initially, you may see some abdominal issues. You may be more prone to leaky gut. You may be more prone to sleep disturbances. Like I talked about, you may really struggle with infertility. And so, you know, the initial phase with cortisol is, cortisol is heightened, so it, it goes, becomes elevated. And then over time, if we're chronically debilitated by stress, we will have the opposite. It'll just, you know, our body is trying and trying and trying to keep up. And then over time, we'll, we'll have lowered cortisol levels, which can show up as fatigue, like you have no energy and, you know, you develop gastrointestinal problems, you develop leaky gut, you, you're prone to developing opportunistic infections in the gut. You may deal with digestive problems beyond that. Again, reproductive issues, you can have brain fog. And there's this downstream effect because what people don't realize is that cortisol impacts estrogen and testosterone. It impacts DHEA, all these sex hormones that are designed to kind of reflect and manifest not only an outward appearance, but our menstrual cycle, our libido, et cetera, can all take a massive hit. And so cortisol is beneficial, but cortisol can also be a sign when our body is under constant stress. And so it's it's important to kind of interject in here that if you are someone who's not sleeping well, who's chronically overstressed, we don't want to add more stressors. So this is where fasting can be beneficial versus detrimental. And so if you're someone that is going through a divorce, has had a significant life stressor, you've lost a job, you've been in the hospital, this is a good time to indicate that your body is still recovering from this significant stressor. And right now, let's be honest, we have macro stressors and micro stressors. There's a lot going on in the world. But you better believe in 2019, when I was in the hospital for 13 days, I didn't, I didn't fast for months because of my body was just wrecked from being so sick. So cortisol, you know, I think Terry Cochran calls it the dirty cupcake but it's really kind of emphasizing for people that when your cortisol is properly balanced, you're going to be able to sleep and manage your stress. Your blood sugar is going to be better controlled. That's one thing I forgot to mention. You know, if you're chronically stressed, you're going to have blood sugar dysregulation, which can manifest as insulin resistance. And this is where we get this tie-in with insulin. But it's really all about mastering these key hormones so that we can put ourselves in, a, in an advantageous position. And I know I talk quite a bit in the book about the things that you need to do to balance the body, bring yourself back into the autonomic nervous system where you're not so focused on the sympathetic, but you're focused on this rest and repose side. And, and that's one of the key aspects of helping to properly balance cortisol is to ensure that your body doesn't think you're running a marathon every day, that you're not being chased by a saber-toothed tiger. And let me just lastly interject that you know stress can show up in weird ways. So 
I know you had David Perlmutter on and, and, you know, in his last book, he talked about how when we're really stressed, we override the prefrontal cortex and we can't make executive decisions. So you're not going to sit down and do calculus. You're probably only going to manage being able to get out the door because you just can't sit down and do advanced level thinking because your body is just flooded with cortisol And the amygdala overrides that prefrontal cortex. So you're not able to make really good decisions. That's when people make impulsive decisions. That's when people do things that are, I hate to say this word, stupid sometimes because they aren't able to really think through their decision-making processes. And certainly, you know, the last couple of years have shown us that there's a lot of that going on. Question about the cortisol, because it is something that women can test or they can do, you know, like a, a urine test. How beneficial do you think that is actually testing cortisol or should women just assume that their cortisol is high? So when it comes to actually testing. Oh, I love to test. It's like one of my favorite things to talk about. I I always say test, don't guess. That is my standard mantra. And so you can test cortisol levels with a couple different substances. You can do it with saliva. You can do it with urine. You can do it with blood. I like a combination of all of the above. I think serum is helpful. It just gives you that snapshot. So serum is blood. Immediately at that point in time when your blood is drawn, that's exactly what your levels are. I do like the the Dutch test, which is a dried urine and saliva testing, depending on which kit you get. That can be hugely beneficial because it can plot out your circadian rhythm. And so cortisol follows a rhythm in the body, kind of like the infradian rhythm, but it's it follows you know melatonin suppression, is when cortisol is highest, we would expect cortisol to be highest in the morning. It ebbs and flows throughout the day and is lowest at night, which tells our body to go to bed. But the Dutch is really helpful because it will plot it out throughout the day and it gives you like a controls, like high and low. And so you can see for yourself, how is your body metabolizing cortisol? Does your body not make enough cortisone, which is the inactive form of cortisol to convert to cortisol? Do you not have enough circulating cortisol? Do you have too much circulating cortisol? And then it maps out your sex hormones, your melatonin. All of these things are all interrelated. And so it can be hugely beneficial. I'm an enormous fan of the Dutch in particular because it gives us a very unique way of looking at our hormones. The caveat is for anyone that's listening is you have to work with someone who's looked at hundreds of them. And I say this with love, but there are a lot of people who end up becoming either they're in our groups or they're working with me one-on-one and they've had a a well-meaning clinician order this test. They're not inexpensive and then it's not properly interpreted. So the caveat I would say is if you're going to do the testing, make sure the person you're working with has looked at hundreds of them. The Dutch is a complicated test. I actually took a whole class to be able to interpret it and I have a binder that's gosh, it's probably six inches thick. I'm not exaggerating. And it took probably looking at a hundred of them to feel comfortable slash confident to be able to use that information. Because in the functional medicine, integrative medicine world, there's a lot of great tests that are available, but they're only as valuable as the person that knows how to interpret them. And that's an important distinction that I think, you know, certainly your listeners, they want to just make sure that whomever they're working with, it's someone that's worked with a lot of these so that they can provide the best advice. I'm really glad that you touched on that because I've done a cortisol Dutch test once and I remember getting the results and because I'm, you know, a self-researcher and I (laughs) I like to try to interpret things, but I just remember looking at this and thinking how important it was to work with somebody knowledgeable who actually could interpret it and hearing what you just said about, you know, all of the 
research and the binder and all the things that you definitely need to be working with a practitioner on that. The other hormones as far, so since you love testing, not guessing. (laughs) So out of all the hormones and all the things that can be tested with that, what can you test? Do you do insulin tests? What about estrogen levels? I know estrogen dominance is a problem today. Can that be tested? Yeah. So, so are you asking specific to the Dutch or just in general? Just in general with women, do you do a full hormonal panel? And when you do, what does that cover? Like what should women be testing? Yeah, I think at a minimum. So we know progesterone as one example is better tested with blood as opposed to the Dutch. Because when you do the Dutch, as an example, it's just a test between days 19 through 22 in your cycle. So during your luteal phase, I do think testing for, there's three predominant forms of estrogen. There's estriol, estrone, and estradiol. Estradiol is the predominant form of estrogen prior to going through menopause. Estrone is the predominant weaker form of estrogen that most women are working, that most women produce in fat tissue in menopause. Kind of a bummer because that's when women really don't want to be adding to their fat stores. I think it's important to do a free and a total testosterone. So really looking at that is very helpful You know, on the other side of that, I like to look at DHEA. I definitely like to look at fasting insulin. I know that a lot of well meaning healthcare professionals will do like a complete blood count. They'll do a CMP, which is a comprehensive metabolic panel, which just looks at fasting glucose. And so we know that your fasting insulin can dysregulate sometimes five to 10 years, way before the glucose and hemoglobin A1C start becoming abnormal. And so fasting insulin is for me, the biomarker that I will look at. You can look at fasting leptin, which is oftentimes absolutely fascinating. Although you'll oftentimes see fasting, abnormal fasting insulin, as well as fasting leptin. This is when people say they just, this is like hedonistic. They can't stop eating. You know, there's all this miscommunication between their brains and their stomach. You know, other things that I'd like to think about, I mentioned progesterone. I do like to look at a full thyroid panel. So TSH, free and total T3 and T4, reverse T3, looking at antibodies. I'm a huge fan of looking at iron panels. So total iron, TIBC, percent SAT, ferritin, which is oftentimes a better marker of, of iron storage. I do like to look at inflammatory markers. So a high sensitivity CRP. I do like to look at homocysteine. And then I like to look at, I mean, this is just like a baseline. I'll look at like an RBC, so red blood cell magnesium and zinc, iodine, folate, B12. That's a starting point. Obviously, each person's an individual, but I think it's, it's a good place to start from so that you have a good sense of what's going on with your body. Now, obviously, a Dutch is not covered by insurance, but I think doing those serum blood markers and a urinary iodine can be very, very helpful. Awesome. Awesome. And again, listen, listeners, there is a full transcript in the show notes. So have no fear. And if you get Cynthia's book, you'll have all the resources. Another hormone I'd love to briefly ask you about, you talk about oxytocin in the book, all of the you know things that can benefit that hormone. I did not realize, well, first of all, you talk about oxytocin. So is oxytocin on or off, or is it more like a dimmer switch? And then also you talk about how it lasts three to five minutes. So do we need to be doing oxytocin stimulating things all the time? What And what is the role of oxytocin? Yeah. So it's this amazing hormone that is secreted by the hypothalamus pituitary gland. And think about it like when a woman is bonding with her baby, if she's breastfeeding her baby, it can be secreted by you know the uterus and, and the placenta. And so it can create this amazing bonding experience. It's why like hugging your pets, and I'm laughing because one of my dogs is walking over to get his 
back scratched right now, but it's this amazing hormone that when we're, we're tapped into it. And again, you can't be in the super overly stressed environment 24 seven and think that you're going to get any good feelings from oxytocin. You get it from sexual intimacy. You can get it from hugs with your loved ones. You can get it from, you know, rubbing your dog, but it also contributes to staying full and having satiety. And so I I remind people there's more to this hormone. We kind of think of it as the mother hormone. It's the hormone that kind of begets all other hormones, how critically important it is to nourish it. And you're right. It doesn't last. That's why you need those. I love that I have dogs because now I have teenagers who are much less interested in being snuggly with their mom like they were when they were younger. So getting those little hits of oxytocin throughout the day can be super helpful, but it doesn't necessarily have to involve you being around other people. I mean, just even laughing. I mean, just having levity, like watching something that makes you happy, doing something that brings you joy. I always get questions like, do I have to be around other people? No, not necessarily. But if you love to garden, if you love to get out in nature, if you know getting on a bicycle or, or exercising brings you joy, I mean, there's other ways that we can stimulate this hormone. But it's really important to understand that it is critically important for staying full. Like there's you know, we have receptors all placed in our body, in our brain, in our uterus, our placenta, our ovaries. So, you know, our body's constantly taking in information from the outside and kind of deciding like, are we nourishing our bodies or are we depleting our bodies? And so this is a poorly understood, (laughs) poorly appreciated hormone, but one that I think is so, so important. Hi friends. We are so honored to be sponsored in part today by NutriSense. You guys hear us talk about continuous glucose monitors, aka CGMs, all the time on this show. And in particular, we love NutriSense, and here is why. NutriSense not only provides a 24-7 moving picture of your glucose values, they also offer a unique opportunity for self-discovery. So imagine this. You have a meal, and then you notice a spike in your glucose levels. So you think, hmm, that didn't go well. But here's the magic. Tomorrow, you can make a simple change. You can swap whatever you were eating for something else. Now you have real-time data to evaluate the impact. Maybe instead of that fruit, you have some vegetables. Maybe instead of that oatmeal, you have some yogurt. Maybe instead of that steak, you have some fruit. The continuous feedback loop that you can get with a NutriSense CGM empowers you to make quick, informed iterations with your meals. Maybe the change results in a completely normal glucose level, or maybe it's still a little bit high, but significantly better. Armed with this knowledge, you can refine your choices further, rapidly steering your glucose values back to the normal range. Without a continuous glucose monitor, honestly, you're just guessing and assuming that what you're doing is working. And when you go test your blood sugar levels at the doctor, that's just a snapshot of that one moment in time. It's not telling you what actually was happening throughout the day all the time. What makes NutriSense truly transformative is its ability to create lasting habits and intrinsic motivation. So instead of relying on generic advice from professionals or online sources or us, you have personalized real-time data from your own body. When you see the direct impact of your choices, it will resonate on a whole new level. This newfound awareness becomes the driving force, making it easier than ever to stay motivated and committed to your health journey. I promise you friends, it's like opening your eyes to the secret to lasting change because it gives you this empowering knowledge that you just didn't have before. So if you're looking to take charge of your health, gain real insights into your body and make sustainable, positive changes, NutriSense is your ultimate partner. Join them and us on this journey of discovery and unlock your full health potential. Get started today at NutriSense.com slash podcast and receive a $30 discount off of your first month, which includes two CGM sensors, free 
free shipping and professional nutritionist support. That's nutrisense.com slash IF podcast for a $30 discount off your first month with two CGM sensors, free shipping and professional nutritionist support which by the way, I get a lot of feedback on just how helpful that nutritionist support is. It's so easy. You can talk to them in real time in the app and they can really help you make sense of all the data that you receive from your continuous glucose monitor. Nutrisense.com slash podcast. And I am just so grateful to Nutrisense for helping support today's show. Yeah, I love you talk about the study in the book about, I think it was an overweight men looking at delicious food and oxytocin reduce their appetite or their cravings, which is so, so cool. So, so yeah. So again, listeners, all of the hormones are in the book. So some more fasting related questions. I'd love to touch on a few of the things that I feel like at least on the intermittent fasting podcast, we don't really talk about that much, or it's not something of a focus of ours that you do touch on because I think listeners would love to hear about it. So as far as things, okay. It's such a, I just laugh about this question because it's such a question on the other podcast. But as far as what breaks a fast, what are your thoughts on what breaks a fast and the idea of clean fasting? And then in particular, I'd love to hear your thoughts on medicinal mushrooms because that's not something that I really play around with and Jen doesn't either. So I'd love to to hear about those. Yeah. So I, I think all of us are very aligned about the concept of clean fasting. And I, I do like people to understand why when you're learning the basics, it's important to distinguish between what will or will not break your fast. So in my mind, and there are a lot of, again, well-meaning fit pros out there and they'll say, oh, if it's under 50 calories, it doesn't count. I'm like, okay, well, the grapes that you just told someone to eat are definitely going to break their fast. So I think about how certain supplements can break your fast, like branch chain amino acids, you know, flavored electrolytes. I think about the fact that, you know, when you, and this is just my personal feeling, we know that dairy products are insulinemic. And so when people think it's no big deal to put heavy cream in their coffee and, and they're being very purposeful, like what is your purpose of fasting? Like if you're trying to change body composition or lose weight, then those little things can add up. And one of the funny things that, my interview Vinny Tortorich on the podcast, and he was saying, when people tell you that they're putting healthy fats into their diet, always clarify. And so I always do that now. But what might be cream in my coffee might be half cream, half coffee. <laughs> so those things can certainly add up fast. But I think about bone broth. I think about you know distinguishing between protein we know will break a fast. Being really clear about the fact that anything that is going to stimulate an insulin response. And I know I, I was laughing uh, a couple of days ago, I was watching something on YouTube and, and you know the concept of cephalic phase insulin response, which I know you all talk about as well. And there were people that were fighting, like they were splitting hairs over what would do that. And so I thought it might be helpful just to say, you know, when we talk about that, it's the sight, smell, or taste of food that will, will secrete some insulin. And so we know it increases salivation. We know that it increases bile secretion, all because your body thinks food is coming. It increases gastric juices. It increases gut motility. And that alone can last eight to 10 minutes. So when people think it's no big deal to smell like grandma's apple pie, but I don't want anyone getting paranoid, feeling like they can't enjoy being fat, being in a fasted state and smelling food, but just to understand like our bodies are very attuned to the environments we're in. So when it comes to breaking your fast, I tend to be very much aligned with you and Jen. It's bitter teas, bitter meaning bitter, not meant to be sweet, plain coffee, 
you know, filtered water, I think are absolutely fine. Unflavored electrolytes are absolutely fine. But the things that will break are fast are the things that are construed as food. And so whether it's chewing gum, whether it is sucking on a mint, I've had people that get really upset. They don't like their keto breath. And so they're... (laughs) They're always frustrated. I'm like, well, I guess I could, you could chew on you know, some fennel, but technically your body is going to think food is coming. But I think it's important for people to understand there are things that can kind of amplify, amplify a fast, things that can be beneficial. And like I dove deep into the research on this, you know, things like, you know, I think about shaga or reishi mushrooms. This is something that Simla talks quite a bit about as well. He's super well-versed in the literature. I don't know if you've interviewed him on the podcast before. Sulforaphane, so like broccoli sprouts, or just a potentiate autophagy, which is that waste and recycling process in the body. Turmeric and ginger, so things that are they're not they're not they're certainly not sweet, but you know based on research can potentiate autophagy. There's also other things that can you know potentiate those things as well. I'm hoping I answered your question because I know that the concept of a clean fast is something that not necessarily everyone embraces. I know we've, we both have had individuals on our podcast who feel differently. Like you can have fiber and you can have all the fat you want. And yes, you know, maybe fat may not, you know, is processed differently in the body, but I I do like people to learn the basics so that they can have success. And if you then go on and you're going to do a bone broth fast, but you're doing a different type of fasting, then that's a differentiator. But when people are learning how to fast, I want them to learn how to do it clean so that they'll get the best results. Yes, exactly. One thing I love is you dive deep into coffee and the the cost benefit of coffee, especially because I think with coffee, you know, it can be a really great aid for fasting, you know, encourage fat burning and energy and reduce cravings. But then on the flip side, I think probably for some women that they might get too much of a cortisol response to it. So what do you find with all the women that you've worked with as far as coffee goes? And do some women just, it's, it's just, they can't do coffee because of the cortisol. Is tea a better option? What are your thoughts on coffee? Yeah, great question. So when I think about coffee, there's two things. First, exposure to mycotoxins. So if anyone's listening and the concept of mold, so you know, making sure you use a clean brand, I think is the first thing. And if someone suspects that they're either getting an exaggerated response, they feel jittery, they don't feel good, I encourage them to use a glucometer, like check your blood sugar before, and check your blood sugar after because that can be very insightful. Sometimes people don't realize that they're getting, you know, their body gets stressed when they consume this coffee product. Maybe it's the caffeine. It may not even be the coffee per se. Maybe it's the mycotoxin. So really getting granular if they really, really love coffee, trying to figure out, is it that brand of coffee? Is it you're sensitive to caffeine? You know, what can we do to try to honor your desire to have the, the therapeutic benefits, you know, from the polyphenols and, and other things, you know, can you try green tea? What I do find for a lot of women is it's very insightful when they start using the glucometers to be able to determine what's their net impact. If their blood sugar goes from 70 to hundred, it's like, okay, well, <laughs> this might be something that's stressing your body. This might be unique to you. This could be a temporary blip. This might be that you've got too much stress going on and this is another stressor. Your body's just saying time out. Or maybe you need to you know, consume a better quality brand coffee that is tested for mycotoxins. And I know you probably have talked about this on your podcast quite a bit. I'm surprised at how many people have a genetic susceptibility. I'm one of them that I'm very sensitive to mold exposure, whether it's in my environment or in my food. And so sometimes you have to you know, take those extra steps, either find 
a manufacturer that screens for for mold or perhaps you need to try something else like green tea or black tea, a bitter tea that might work better for you or take a break entirely to see how, you know, your N of one, I always say, you know, the N of one is important, but it may be that for right now, that's not the right substance for you to consume that might be hugely impactful. So another question, just because like I said, you talk about things that I don't personally really talk about on the other show. And I think it's so, so important. So the hormone DHEA. So I remember like forever ago before I was really into all of this stuff, I was reading about DHEA and I was like, oh, I'm going to supplement with DHEA. And then that did not go well. Um, <laughs> and then since then, I supplemented with something called 7-Keto DHEA. I was wondering what your thoughts are on DHEA. Yeah, no, I, I think for, and I always I always like to look at a Dutch before I render an opinion because the lifestyle piece always plays a role if DHEA is suppressed. And so just to give an overview, like DHEA is another very important hormone. You know, downstream net effect is DHEA will cleave off and and create testosterone and the metabolites, androgen metabolites. But it's also supposed to work in conjunction with cortisol. They're just to kind of balance one another out. But if you have someone that is really depleted, your body will preferentially fuel production of cortisol over DHEA. So it's the vitality hormone. It's a hormone that's important for energy. Obviously, if your DHEA is low, your libido may maybe have gone poof. And so I, I think supplementation is reasonable. Seven keto DHA I have used, and the thought process is it's less likely to be aromatized into estrogen. That can be a huge problem with DHA. You don't know how the body is going to use it. Is it going to aromatize to estrogen, or is your body going to use it to, you know, kind of fuel those testosterone pathways? So I, I think it's it's highly bio individual. I like to do the Dutch specifically to look at that if if testosterone levels are low. Sometimes I want to look at serum testing to corroborate that. I do think it can be helpful. And I think for a lot of people, especially as they're getting closer to like middle age, like 40-ish and above, more often than not, we will supplement with some DHEA. Although what's interesting to me is that I see clinicians doing really high doses of DHEA. And I, I don't think I've seen enough research to suggest that they should be supplementing with like 100 milligrams of DHEA. I generally start pretty low because for some people, it's very stimulating I take DHEA as does my husband and oftentimes it can be helpful for kind of priming the pumps. Like as our bodies are making less of these hormones, as we're getting closer to menopause and andropause, it can be beneficial to help replete them. But the the foundational work always needs to be on the, the sleep, the stress, the not over-exercising, et cetera. You know, one thing that I think is really important for people to understand is that supplements are great and supplements can be so beneficial on so many levels. And obviously I talk about them in the book, but the real foundational approaches to health are what we have to do first before we start adding in supplements. Because I think it's so easy to say, oh, I don't want to work on the sleep piece. I'm just going to te- take in supplements to help my sleep. And I'm like, you got to work on the sleep first and start adding in supplements. As just one example, I'm sure, Melanie, you see quite a bit of that as well. That was something I like highlighted in your book where you were saying starting intermittent fasting. And you, I think you said that you know if your sleep is not in line like, or your stress, like that's got to be dealt with first. Yeah. Because I, I, I cannot tell you how many women and and I, and I don't, I don't fault them for this because I think this is human nature. They want to lose weight. They want to fast. And I'm like, okay, let's back up the bus. We've got to make sure we've got your sleep dialed in because if your sleep and stress are out of control, 
your body's going to perceive it's like we're heaping on another layer of stress. Like it's not going to be as amenable. And so again, much like the menstrual cycle, I, I lose, I use sleep as a barometer for how well people are managing and mitigating their health. You know, what's their hormone balance like? And I'm oversimplifying, of course, there's far more to it than that. But, you know, I know when my sleep is bad, like I'm, I'm obsessed with my aura ring. And every day I like look at my, my REM sleep and my deep sleep. And I tell my husband, like, I'll be darned. I don't want to be tethered to this thing, but I love it because I get up in the morning and the days I feel great. My data always correlates. It always does. Same thing if I have a crappy night of sleep. It's like, you know, my REM and my deep sleep are down. I'm like, oh, you know, it's just validation. I love the aura ring. And I talked about this on the other show and on my Instagram, but I recently had COVID and the effects it had on my aura ring because I like I, I didn't feel that bad. So I'm not sure that I would have thought necessarily it was COVID, but my aura ring was like <laughs> It was like, you're dying. Not really, really, but like it it was like, it gave me, um, the scores were so fascinating. And then interestingly, this is really interesting. So since then I've been taking some medications for COVID and I think they've been affecting my sleep, but interestingly, I like, I don't feel like I'm sleeping as well, but my aura ring has actually said that my sleep has been fine and I haven't been tired during the day. I think there's just something changing. This is completely end of one and probably not helpful for anybody, but it's like my, my experience of my, my sleep at night has been changing and I don't, I don't really know what that means. Um, (laughs) Oh, another tangent, but you, you talk about melatonin in the book. So have you interviewed John Lawrence? He is coming on next month. I cannot wait. Okay. So um, for listeners, he is the melatonin guy and he's all about high dose melatonin. This is so funny, Cynthia. So I think two nights ago, so I've been taking melatonin in part for COVID. So it's the same brand as my digestive enzymes. I currently get pure encapsulations. The actual pills look the exact same. The bottle looks almost the exact same. So I realized last night when I was pulling out my digestive enzymes that I had thought the night before my melatonin bottle was my digestive enzyme bottle. And I take a lot of digestive enzymes. So I counted the pills out. I think I took like 15 melatonins the prior night. What was the amount that you took? Maybe 20. (laughs) Three three milligrams. So it, it probably ended up being... Yeah, somewhere. I mean, it might have been like 60 milligrams of melatonin. But you know what's funny is that like I've completely nerded out on sleep and melatonin the last like two months. And I'm so glad you're asking me about this because now I'm, it's like bleeding into my work with like every group person. I'm talking about melatonin like all the time. So uh, probably a month ago, I decided I was going to step up my sleep game. And I'm like you, I'm very conscientious about what I take when I take it. And I started with the, consent of my integrative medicine doc started doing high dose melatonin. And and his feeling was, let's do this to kind of replenish because after the age of 40, we don't make as much. And so I was doing 18 milligrams every night. And it was like, I went from having like good sleep to great sleep. Like every night, my, my REM and deep sleep were doubled. I mean, it was unbelievable. And I'm doing all the other things. And then I got the Sandman. Which is in my refrigerator, by the way. Oh my God. If you can get beyond the fact, yeah. So, so if you can get beyond putting it in your rectum, because 
I know, like my whole family, I don't, I don't tell my whole family, but it's telling my husband and he was like, I don't even want to know. Don't even tell me. He's like, yeah. but here's the thing. It's a very, very vascular part of your body. So it's actually a really good place to, and as an ER nurse, we used to put a lot of things, medications in the rectum. So you have to put in the rectum, but oh my God, you wake up the next morning. You're like, I had the most delicious, amazing night of sleep. So I cannot wait to bring him on and pick his brain, but I am all about the net impact of what melatonin does in the body. And so that's the thing that I've completely started really nerding out on is like the antioxidant benefits, especially, you know, we know with COVID that it's really, that's very, very helpful for healing COVID. But it's one of those things, like I was trying to explain to someone that we think of melatonin just as a hormone. Like we think it's your sleep hormone. It works in opposition to cortisol and it gets suppressed in the morning when we get up and get light exposure but the antioxidant net impact of melatonin impacts every part of our bodies. You know, we've got clocks, you know, these super, super chiasmatic clock. I don't know why I'm struggling to say that today, but we have these clocks in our gut all over our body. And so having melatonin at healthy doses also has this net impact on serotonin and estrogen and it's amazing. So don't be afraid that you took that much. Cause I certainly, when you get the, when you have the Sandman on board, I, I forget it's like a hundred or 200 milligrams of melatonin, but I've been taking eight. I did 18 milligrams and 12. Now I'm down to six every night. And it's like, it's almost like it's reset those melatonin receptors. It's really been fascinating. It was definitely a moment. I was like, Oh my goodness. <laughs> So, yeah. And it's so interesting. So I, like I said, I have the Sandman in my fridge and like I do, and I've been very open about this. I do all the things like I do colonics, I do coffee enemas. I don't know why I can't do the suppositories. Well, you know, what's funny. I, I had to laugh. So there's a woman on my team who's another advanced practice nurse. And so she got Sandman first and she, I mean, she's a fellow nurse. The two of us laughed on the phone when she told me all about her experience and she just said, I think nurses just have like terrible potty humor because we just giggled like schoolgirls laughing about it. I think once you get over the fact that you're putting it in your bottom, it's like not a big deal, but like the net impact. I think the other thing is it's also expensive. So let me be clear. Like I'm not using this every night. I'm using it like once a week just because it's not inexpensive, but I cannot wait to interview him. Have you interviewed him yet? Yeah, I've become pretty good friends with him. So I'm probably going to text him after this and say that we were <laughs> fan, fangirling over his work. Another suppository that just came in the mail, because this is, this is the type of things that people send to me. <laughs> a, a CBD suppository I just got in the mail. Do you take CBD? Do you use it? I'm not regularly. I mean, I went through this period of time where I had a lot of either podcast sponsors or people who wanted to sponsor Instagram content. And so I was getting a lot of CBD products. And it became a running joke. Like I had so much, I couldn't use it all. And so now that is all slowed down. I, I think for me, I initially used it for sleep, but then I started feeling like there were other supplements that for me personally were more beneficial. And so I kind of let that go. Like I know like the whole physiology behind, I think CBD, if it's, it's, if it's a good quality product, which I'm sure you received in the mail, it's all fascinating, but I, I've just found other things that are more beneficial for me for sleep. Or if I like want an anti-anxiety thing, I'll grab GABA. Like that's just worked well for me. Cause I found that CBD is definitely very individual for me. It's a game changer. Really? That's awesome. Once I found my dosing. So I take it every single night and it's just really amazing for me. But, and I work historically with one brand because the problem is there's so many CBDs on the market now. And 
like there's just no regulation and it's just, it's really a problem. So I found feels and I love feels and take feels all the time. But this company that reached out for because I literally get approached by CBD companies probably weekly. It's crazy, but they reached out and this relates actually to everything we're talking about. They make like lubricants and um, like oils and a lot of that stuff. And it's so hard to find clean stuff. I have some other stuff. It's good. Yeah. So I was very excited about that. So there's, there's so much more that we could touch on, but there's one big topic that I did want to circle back to that we kept approaching, but we didn't actually really discuss. And that is the perimenopause transition to menopause. Do all women go through perimenopause? I didn't realize, for example, that there's five phases. I learned that in your book. Like with your patients, how many women struggle with it? Something I thought that was really interesting was you mentioned that for smokers and for women without kids that it might come earlier. Do you know why that is? Do you have any idea? I don't know. So the smoking piece, I I think just in general, like smokers tend to embrace less healthy habits. I think that's probably what it's based off of. In terms of being, you know, we use the term nulliparis, like as you haven't had children, I'm not entirely sure. What I have seen clinically is that thinner women are going into menopause earlier, like 47, 48. Average American is 51. So does everyone go through perimenopause? Yes, if they live long enough. And and hopefully people, everyone listening is going to live long enough to go into perimenopause. But for some people, it could be five to 10 years preceding menopause. And so I think that the women that do best making that transition are the ones that are doing the work. You can get away with a lot in your 20s and 30s. And I can officially say this as a middle-aged woman. You can get away with a lot. Like what I got away with in my 20s and 30s in terms of what I ate and how little I slept and not managing my stress. I had a super stressful job. 40 was a was definitely a leveling, leveling the playing field. And so if you are not ever exercising, you've got an anti-inflammatory diet, you have a job you that brings you tremendous joy, you have great, you know, relationships you're getting good quality sleep, you're not over-exercising, you're going to have an easier transition than someone who's doing the opposite. Standard American diet, very sedentary, smoking, You know, doesn't have a job that they love. Maybe they have a lot of significant financial and other st- types of stress in their lives, d- doesn't have a support system. So your perimenopausal transition is really a barometer of how well you're taking care of yourself. And we as women tend to do a really great job of taking care of everyone but ourselves. So it's no surprise that this is the time when a lot of women start advocating. You know, it's also the time a lot of women have children at home and maybe their parents are aging. And and so it can be a very stressful time period. But the women that I see that aren't riddled with horrible hot flashes and tremendous weight gain are the ones that are doing the work. And I think that, you know, obviously I, I had that blip when I hit the wall of perimenopause, but then I straightened everything out. You know, I stopped doing 5.30 a.m. conditioning classes. I slept more. I, you know, didn't have such a, rest- I didn't perceive it was a restrictive diet, but probably too low carb for me, you know, managed my stress better, really took better care of myself. And and so I, I do think women can get through that that time period and, you know, that research that I found, there's not a lot of like great research on perimenopause because it's this nebulous time. You know, for some people, they might only have five years in perimenopause and then boom, their period stops and it's all over. And, you know, it's been my, certainly been my experience that we recognize that hormones like estrogen, you know, so obviously at the beginning stages of perimenopause, 
you're going to have this relative estrogen dominance because progesterone is starting to wax and wane and the ovaries, you may not be ovulating every month and you may not even be cognizant of it. Your symptoms might be as benign as you're waking up in the middle of the night, maybe you have more anxiety and depression because progesterone is that kind of buffering mellow sister hormone and you've got this relative estrogen dominance. So you're gaining weight, you've got fibrocystic breasts, you've got very heavy crime scene periods as I affectionately used to refer to them. And so that can be kind of the beginning stages but a lot of the rest of it can be very bio-individual. But something that's important for people to understand is you know, the weight gain piece, which can be so distressing, especially when you're doing all the things that you should be doing to help maintain your weight, can really be a byproduct of cortisol being up. Remember, we talked about these cortisol receptors. We've got 40 times more cortisol receptors on our abdomen. It can also be a byproduct of the fact that we lose the buffering effects of, of estrogen. And so estrogen is an insulin-sensitizing insulin hormone, meaning as you are getting closer to the end of your menstrual cycle for the rest of your life, you are going to be more prone to insulin resistance. Add in poor dietary choices, stress, sleep, you know, sleep disturbances. It's like the perfect storm. It's really... It's it's really just kind of cruel, you know. I I look at my teenagers and they're you know they're hitting puberty and like mine was you know starting to peter off. And so, the lens with which I look at perimenopause as a transitional point is that women do have control over a lot of things. And so that's always that reframe. What do you have control over? It goes back to those pillars that I've talked about throughout our conversation and in my book, intermittent fasting transformation is really honoring sleep quality, stress management, anti-inflammatory nutrition, not over-exercising, connecting with people and, and doing things that you love as opposed to forcing yourself doing things that you don't enjoy. And so perimenopause can be a wonderful time for women, it can also be a harrowing, stressful time. But what I do find is for a lot of women that when they finally go 12 months without a cycle, you know, it's a big sigh of relief. It's like one less thing to have to worry about. For a lot of people, there's a tremendous amount of shame and embarrassment with no longer being fertile, which you know I think is really does us a detriment as women that it, we really need to reframe it. We spend forty percent of our lifetime in menopause. Why not make it wonderful? It's a time when you know people can have tremendous creative purposes. They you know may not their children may be grown or they may be at a different point in their career or they may be able to travel. There can be just a lot of wonderful things that come out of no longer having a menstrual cycle every month and. Certainly, I, I'm an example of someone that made that transition pretty effortlessly, and I think a lot of women can. They shouldn't look at it as something to fear. That's what I get DMs about. Oh, my God, what am I going to do? And I just say, hey, it's part of life. We live long enough, it's going to happen. And if it makes anyone feel better, men go through andropause. It's just a little less dramatic. That is a, a beautiful reframe, which um, appropriately enough is one of the topics that is it's near the end of the book and also typically tends to be near the end of my episodes, but that is the role of mindset. You talk a lot about mindset. One thing I love in particular that you talk about is, you know, reframing limiting beliefs. One of the things I love about your book and talking about limiting beliefs is there are a lot of limiting beliefs surrounding dieting and fasting specifically. And you talk about how to reframe them, but you actually you would need the knowledge in order to properly, you know, reframe them, especially when it comes to concerns surrounding fasting, you know, like it's unsafe or I'll be hungry or, and you really do need, you know, that 
knowledge to know why that's not true. So what are some of the mindset practices that you find really can benefit women, you know, limiting beliefs, gratitude? Oh, I love your good, better, best. I've talked about that on an episode of I have podcast for so long because I've, I had never heard of that before, like that concept. And it's the perfect solution for people like me and a lot of listeners who are, might be perfectionists. And so they're really, you know, intimidated by, you know, making changes or doing things because they think they have to be perfect. So I just said a lot, but um, yeah, mindset, the role of mindset. Yeah, I, I think mindset is everything. I, I say that to my kids that probably makes them groan to hear their mother saying that ad nauseum. But I really do think that whatever we, whatever challenges we're presented with in our lifetime, it's all about the reframe. It's all about the mindset shift. It's all about finding the good when, you know, through adversity comes opportunity, which my kids hear all the time. But even if you're having like a crappy day, like finding one thing to be really grateful for. Like I think starting your day with gratitude, getting really granular, it could be as silly as I'm grateful for today. I woke up before my alarm clock. Like it could be that simple, but we know that it helps. It changes the physiology and the brain. We recognize how critically important it is to, you know, just look at life and it's not being Pollyanna-ish. It's just acknowledging that there are going to be bumps in the road. You're going to have a time when maybe you're traveling. This is an example of the good, better, best, especially for, as Melanie said, those of you that are more perfectionistic, you're in a store or you're in a restaurant and you know you can't get grass-fed, pastured, anything. And so it's good, better, best. It's like, what is the best option I can make at this restaurant? I'm going to eat it. I'm going to enjoy it. I'm going to let it go. And just giving yourself grace, like that's another aspect that I've I would say for me, where I am in my time, my, my lifetime is I, I'm a reformed people pleaser and I'm a, I'm a reformed perfectionist. And so I say this from the heart is giving myself grace. Like not every day is going to work out the way I wanted it to. Not everything is going to work out the way that I wanted to. And, and I think it's, it's so important as women that we acknowledge our uniqueness and how special we are, but also acknowledge that you know, sometimes things just don't go the way we want and that's okay. Like we can just roll with it. And I always say to my kids, like there was something that happened professionally this week that was, there was a total bummer, but you know, I like reframed it and said, okay, this is the way things are going to be at this time with this particular class. It's totally okay. We're going to work through it. And so it's that constant acknowledgement of looking at the good in your life, reframing things, expressing gratitude, understanding like something as simple as learning something new. Like it doesn't have to be complicated. Like I've been nerding out on audiobooks recently, which I go through periods of time where I'm fixated on one thing or another. And I was saying to my husband, like just being in my car, because every woman that's listening probably spends too much time in their cars. I was like, I was able to get through 15 hours of an audiobook, And it brought me so much joy because every time I got in my car, I could listen to the audiobook again. And just acknowledging like learning something new can create more synapses, this concept of neuroplasticity, how critically important it is for us as women to make sure we've got like a healthy dialogue in our brains because we can, you know, what wires together fires together. And I tell people all the time that your thoughts become your actions. And so again, that neuroplasticity piece is so important. I think far too many people like think terrible things in their head and maybe they say nice things out of their mouth, but your brain hears everything that you're thinking. So it's really important that we're very dedicated to making sure that we are, that we're just as healthy minded as we can be. You know, I, I think again, after the last two years have taught us a lot 
And I think at many levels, you know, really were to celebrate that we were making it like on the other side, we're all, you know, better for this, this past year is what we've been through. And just really acknowledging that, you know, creating a practice of proper mindset is something you work on every day. Like, it's not like I wake up every day and I'm thinking everything's going to fall into place. There are days where I just happen to stumble across something Mel Robbins, who I think is brilliant, has written. And I'm like, oh my gosh, how did she know this is exactly what I needed to see this morning to put a smile on my face? But just surrounding yourself with positive messaging, people who are encouraging, creating boundaries. That's one other thing I probably didn't talk a lot about in the book, creating boundaries for individuals, You know, making sure the people that you spend time with, you interact with are healthy, well-adjusted humans and not toxic people that take your energy from you. I could not agree more. I just think it's so, so important. And I love how you're talking about, you know, trying new things and learning new things. And perhaps my favorite benefit about intermittent fasting is definitely up there, but it's just, it's one that's not quite anticipated by a lot of people. And it's just how much time you get back and how, I mean, it opens, at least for me, it opens up so much time and opportunity because you're not focused on eating 24 seven. I love that. Well, this has been absolutely amazing. Listeners, there is so much information in this book. You've got to get it. So many things we didn't even touch on, gut health and muscle. And Cynthia dives deep into really specifics of all the different fears surrounding fasting and what to eat and traveling and prepping and just so, so many things. So we'll put a link to it in the show notes. Definitely get the book. The last question that I ask every single guest on this show. So I asked you it last time, but I will ask you it again. And it relates to everything that we were just talking about, but what is something that you're grateful for? Oh, well, I would say, you know, one of the things that I posted on Instagram today is that one of the really cool things about my job is that I have opportunities to connect with amazing people in the health and wellness space. And I'm so very grateful that we connected and we became friends. And so, you know, on so many levels, Melanie has added so much to, you know, my own podcasting journey and my own kind of perspectives on life and, you know, right now I'm grateful for your friendship, Melanie. So thank you for that. Oh, I am so grateful as well. <laughs> I, I I really, really am. I You're one of the people that I'll just have moments randomly. Maybe it's when we're talking, maybe not, but I'm just like, oh, I'm just so grateful for Cynthia. <laughs> so um, yeah, this has been so, so wonderful. And I'm really excited because normally I record the episodes and then they air you know, months from now, but we're going to time this around your book release. So listeners get to hear it sooner rather than later. And I'm, I'm so excited during this whole conversation. I've just been thinking, wow, like, oh, listeners are going to love this. So thank you so much for all that you're doing. I am forever grateful for you and our friendship and your work and everything that you're doing. And I, I can't wait to see where it all goes from here. Thank you so much for listening to the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. Please remember, everything we discussed on this show does not constitute medical advice and no patient-doctor relationship is formed. If you enjoyed the show, please consider writing a review on iTunes. We couldn't do this without our amazing team. Administration by Sharon Merriman. Editing by Podcast Doctors. Show notes and artwork by Brianna Joyner. Transcripts by Speech Docs. And original theme composed by Leland Cox and recomposed by Steve Saunders. See you next week.